Coming up on this episode. Everybody knows how to say epidemiology now and has a pretty good understanding of what an epidemiologist does. I actually think the pandemic could lead to more young people considering public health as a career. This is an opportunity for students to really give back to an organization and to kind of break down those barriers sometimes that, that come up between a, a university and the community that they're in. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori. Today, I'm glad to have my co-workers at Ohio University, Dr. Michelle Moroni and Dr. Tiffany Arnold, who joined me to talk about a book that they recently published highlighting the Appalachia region here in the U.S. The edited book, aptly titled From Surviving to Thriving in Appalachia, is a compilation of essays and papers from Ohio University faculty, staff, and students, as well as the partnerships with various community organizations in the region. The primary purpose of the book is to highlight the importance of relationships and collaboration, and also Ohio University's impact on the Appalachia region. The various chapters reflect the works of different experts in arts, community health, behavioral health, environmental health, curriculum and instruction, communication disorders, health services administration, and much, much more. I have known Drs. Moroni and Arnold for a while now, including collaborating with Dr. Moroni on some of her Appalachia research related to access to healthcare in rural communities. Join me in welcoming Drs. Moroni and Arnold to the show. Well, thank you so much, um, doctors Michelle Moroni and Tiffany Arnold. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. There's so much to talk about, um, but before we dive deep into the agenda, I just want to talk a little bit about your background in terms of your expertise and your training. So I know Dr. Moroni, your expertise is in environmental health, while Dr. Arnold, your expertise is in curriculum and instruction. I just wanted to know a little bit about why you went into that field and for both of you, why your primary focus ended up being in Appalachia. So we'll start with you, Dr. Moroni. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Kingori, for inviting us on the podcast today. I always love to come talk to you about environmental health in general and Appalachia specifically. Um, I've been uh, in the field for almost 30 years now, and um, it was, you know, it started when I was very young, my, my interest in the environment, um, but it wasn't really until I came to Ohio University about 24 years ago that I got more involved and interested in the connection between environmental conditions and human health. And I was fortunate enough to end up in the uh, Department of Social and Public Health where there's a really good fit uh, looking at environmental conditions and human health. In terms of Appalachia, I think it's just a a natural progression for me um, professionally because I'm became really interested in health equity and health disparities. And when you, uh, the more you you come to understand environmental conditions and the role that they play in health, 
the more you understand that there are communities and places that are exposed to environmental conditions that affect their health. Um, and Appalachia is one of those places. So it really has just been a natural progression. And I've been doing most of my, my research in the region for the past 10 or 15 years now. I have a little different story than Dr. Arnold, though, because while my family is from Western Pennsylvania in Appalachia, I did not grow up here. And Dr. Arnold really has more of a, a personal connection to the region, don't you, Tiffany? Yeah, I I kind of had a, a, a winding road to, to get to the where I am right now. Um, my family has been in this part of the country for eternity. Um, my mom's family is from uh, Eastern Kentucky and Virginia, and my dad's family is from right around here. And I, you know, it might sound odd that I have a background in education, but um, when I started focusing on, you know, working with people in this region and looking at culture and the impact that culture has on decision-making for young people in this region, it didn't take much longer for me to really jump into everything that goes along with that in terms of Appalachian studies. And, and that, you know, it naturally, you know, evolves into to learning, you know, how culture impacts the way people are reacting to things in terms of health behaviors or the way that, you know, people have been exploited or, you know, the culture has evolved over time. And so when you get into Appalachian studies, it's really very interdisciplinary. So um, it was kind of a natural progression for me to get where we are now. Awesome. So you, the purpose of today was mainly to really go over and talk to you about the book you recently self-published um, or self-edited also um, titled From Surviving to Thriving in Appalachia, which highlights the importance of place, passion, and possibilities. And even before we get into what the book is about, um, could any of you tell us what what is Appalachia? You know, for those people who have no idea what that is word or name means and uh, we know it's in rural America what is that what does it com comprise you know what is Appalachia I think I'm going to ask Dr. Arnold to answer that question because she does it so well when people ask that awesome well you could ask a hundred people what Appalachia is and you'd probably get a different a hundred different answers from that but um, generally we go with the Appalachian Regional Commission definition and it is consists of 13 states with parts of 13 states with West Virginia being the only state entirely in the region, um, 420 counties, 205,000 square miles. Uh, and it stretches actually from uh, as far south as, you know, um, Alabama all the way up into New York, which a lot of people are surprised about. Um, when most people think of, you know, the idea of what Appalachia is, they're thinking about you know, North Central and Central Appalachia, which is really, you know, uh, Southeast Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, Virginia, that kind of middle area. But a lot of people don't realize how large the region really is. So when we when we talk about Appalachia, you know, um, a lot of people will will think about stereotypes that, that come to mind, but you really can't apply any of those statements, you know, to that entire region because it's so large. So it's important to remember, um, you know, what the ARC definition is and, and really how large that area is. 
but yet there are there are many Appalachian scholars and people who live in the region or people who lived in the region and left the region who are pretty defiant about using geographical boundaries to define it. And that's why when Dr. Arnold says, you know, you ask 100 people, you're going to get 100 different answers because it's to so many people, it's more than just, I live in a county that's been designated Appalachia. There's a lot more meaning to it. And um, that meaning is found in the place and in the passion and in the possibilities here, which is the subtitle of our book. Great. That's a wonderful segue. So would you tell us um, a little bit about what those three things um, entail? How did you choose um, for place, passion, and possibilities to be the main themes in your book? What does surviving and thriving mean? And how can we place that in a public health context? Sure, I'll get started. And, and I'll, I'll appreciate it if Dr. Arnold will, will jump in whenever she feels the need to do so. Um, the First of all, I, I really want to talk about the motivation for the book, because it is a book that is is more about um, a circumstance than it is about, you know, we sat down and decided we, we, we should write a book like this. And the circumstance was that for the first time in its 44-year history, the Appalachian Studies Association annual conference was going to be held at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio this year in 2021. And we were very excited about hosting the conference. And we developed a program that really was going to focus on positive aspects and specifically positive aspects related to health in the region. And um, so we, our, our theme was Appalachia Fest to celebrate the region. And the book was really something that we decided to put together kind of as um, both a memento and a, um, a compilation and demonstration of the work that has been happening in Southeast Ohio, a lot of it tied to Ohio University. Now, as, as with many uh, conferences are, we are not hosting uh, an in-person conference this year in 2021. Appalachian Studies Association will be virtual this year. And um, interestingly, it has allowed us to really focus on um, social justice issues. And just as an aside, the theme for the virtual conference this year is anti-racism in Appalachian studies. Um, and we have a great conference lined up. But Ohio University will host the conference in 2023, as long as we're able to do so at that point. And this book will be part of that conference, really celebrating um, the positive, as many positive stories that we could put together in one short volume or one slim volume. And then, so you did ask about the, the subtitle, the place and the passion and the possibilities. And, and I think Dr. Arnold just, you know, explained a little bit about the place and, you know, it, it's more than just a geographic region. Um, I, I don't know, um, uh, Dr. Arnold, do you want to talk a little bit about the place section? Because that was one section that you were um, working on specifically, and, and maybe talk about a couple of the of the essays in that section. Yeah, um, so you, you really can't talk about the region without talking about place in terms of people's connection to it. 
and the impact it has on people. And, you know, there's a reason people don't want to leave. Um, and, and there's kind of a, you know, a uniqueness to the region and to that connection to place. And, and it's, um, you know, it's more than just the geography, as Dr. Maroney said. It's really, it's really unique in a lot of ways. Um, not necessarily in some of the ways that people, you know, when they look at it a deficit-based perspective, they may think it's unique in some ways that aren't necessarily positive, but it's unique in a lot of other ways. Um, for example, in the place section, we have um, some contributors that, that talk about, you know, Black Appalachian history in Southeast Ohio, specifically the, the Chester Hill Multicultural Genealogical Society. Um, we have a chapter that looks at service learning in, in the little cities of Black Diamonds. Um, there's another one that, that looks more at cultural heritage of the Hawking River Valley in terms of archaeology. Um, and then we have a couple of chapters on seed saving. And then it would be remiss to talk about place and not include a chapter on uh, Appalachian coal mining and the legacy of that. And that was um, a really great chapter by uh, Dr. Natalie Cruz. And in the passion section, um, the contributors, there's four or four essays in that section, and two of them are related to food and, and food justice and specifically um, organizations in the area that address food insecurity. And um, the community food initiatives is highlighted in two chapters in that section. Um, probably one of the most, to me, one of the most compelling chapters was a contribution by um, um, a fine arts professor um, in collaboration with some city officials, Athens city officials, where they they talk about a project that they did um, using uh, art, using photographs in the city of Athens as a um, almost as a treatment or as, or as a way to help people manage mental health issues. And there's some really beautiful pictures included in that chapter. And then we also have a, um, a chapter in the passion section about maternal and child health. And all that really leads to the, the final section of the book, which is, which is possibilities. And um, there's a contribution about how students at Ohio University worked with uh, children and their families who were on the autism spectrum disorder and how that really benefited both the students and the families. Um, we have another chapter related to coal mining from Dr. Cruz and her colleagues. And the, the book finishes up with um, a summary of a project related to healthcare access in the region. And they're all, these are three um, stories that, that show that uh, passion and place can lead to positive changes in Appalachia. So we're really thrilled with the contributions and all of them are really tied to Ohio University in Athens. Indeed, um, the book has very interesting chapters. And, you know, again, you highlighted some of those overarching themes of food insecurity, community organization, social justice, economic hardships, social cultural resilience, health disparities across this Appalachia region. And we know that these are not just issues that you find just in this book. These are issues that continue um, to be part of that um, community. So tell us more about some of those um, issues, food security, community organization, social justice, economic hardship. You talked about coal mining. 
what is their association with thriving in Appalachia as well as surviving? Yeah, I'll start, and then then Dr. Arnold can add on. Um, I think when when you see food insecurity and you see social justice and economic conditions, and you you see it in the context of Appalachia, I think it's often tempting to to just think of all of those issues as being negative issues and issues that that make the region um, less than than other regions. I um, mean, and what the book does, and what we were trying, what we're going to try to do with the conference as well in 2023, is use those issues, but to demonstrate that even though they may be different in Appalachia, it doesn't mean they're negatives to the region. The understanding, the documentation that there's health disparities does create to opportunities to improve those disparities. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm making much sense there, and, and maybe I'll ask Dr. Arnold to help bail me out a little bit on that. I would just say that that it is so common for people to look at this region from a negative light instead of thinking about all the possibilities and all of the resilience that people in this region embody. Um, And what really excited me about this book and about these three themes is that it really gives an opportunity to show people, you know, the direction that we can head in and and the improvements that have been made and the, the great things that people are doing instead of just focusing on, you know, the struggles that we've had. I think that, that when we, I always tell my students that when we just focus on the, the struggles in the region, then we ignore the, all the amazing assets that we have here. Um, and so I, I didn't want to, you know, have a book that, that just focused, like so many others do, that just focused on the negative and, and the issues. But I wanted to show that we are working towards, you know, resolving some of these issues. And I think the title really tells the story. It, you know, when you look at from surviving to thriving, it really helps us know that Again, what are these assets that the community has? Uh, you know, what is beautiful, what is amazing about this community, other than the stereotypical stories we've had in the past about the needs that are plaguing the Appalachia community. All right. So there's a chapter that stood out for me, and it discusses service learning as an integral as integral to the college student life and the authors discuss the importance of engaging students in the community um, as we know in underserved communities and both of you have worked with students I have worked with students um, and you know from your perspective why is it important and how does it benefit the student and the community especially working with our underserved communities Dr. Maroney then Dr. Arnold. Actually, the, there's one chapter specifically in the place section that talks about service learning specifically for students in education. Um, but there are a couple other chapters in the book that, while specifically don't say this is service learning, it, it really is. And I, the chapter on um, in, in which tells a story about the students from um, the College of Health Sciences and Professions who engaged with children with autism spectrum disorder is a really good example of something that's maybe not tagged as service learning, but actually obviously is. Um, and in this this project that is um, presented in this chapter, talks about how students created materials to help children communicate, children on the, on the autism spectrum uh, communicate. And th- the benefits 
to these students, I, I think this this um, chapter just was was really compelling to me, much like the photo, uh, the Athens photographic project chapter. Uh, but the benefits to the students who worked on the autism project were were really explicit, and it it includes that students um, were able to apply what they learn in the classroom to real world settings, and because of that, they're they're going to be better prepared to work in their fields, whether they are a, a teacher like the service learning chapter, or they're somebody that's um, working in, with communication sciences and disorders as the students in the autism spectrum disorder uh, uh, essay are. Um, so th what they're learning in the classroom, they'll be able to apply in their field. And doing it in Appalachia, because so many of our students at Ohio University are not from the region. So doing service learning or any kind of experiential learning in the region will leave the students more prepared to work in the region. And maybe, just maybe, they'll stay here um, because they'll fall in love with the, with the place and the people like many of us have. Um, it allows students to develop what um, is referred to as cultural competency, and they can apply the culture that they're working with, especially to the to the projects that they're working with, but especially with underrepresented groups. Does, does that sound, Dr. Arnold? Do you want to add on to that at all? Yeah, um, you know the the service learning chapter specifically with the education students. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with the same organization, Little Cities of Black Diamonds, that this chapter focuses on. And it's been a really great opportunity for students because at the end of it, I, I specifically work with them for an Appalachian Teaching Project Fellowship. And at the end of the project, they always say, I found out why it matters. You know, working with, they, they get to attend meetings with community members, they get to work on a, an event that we plan and they find out and they say at the end, they say, you know, from this, I got to see why it matters that people learn about this region. And I think that for me, that's the most rewarding part of the service learning. Um, and I would also say for the organizations that it's, you know, it's a really good chance to have a mutually beneficial um, experience for everyone involved. Um, this region has been subject so much to, you know, exploitation by extractive industries. And sometimes people can, you know, characterize you know, the universities as an extractive industry and in that we, you know, we'll do research here and, and things like that. And, and they don't feel like that we give back. And so when we really engage in service learning, this is an opportunity for students to, you know, to really give back to an organization and to kind of break down those barriers sometimes that, that come up between a, a university and the community that they're in. So um, for me, service learning is, um, is really essential to, to students and communities understanding how that relationship works. That's awesome. And along that grain, when we think about service learning, to a certain extent, it's community engagement work. Um, but what I want to focus on now is the culture of, of the communities that we engage with. And for purposes of today and the, the book we're discussing, it's the Appalachia community. So the culture of a given community is integral in the decisions that they make, um, whether it's the food they eat, whether it's the beliefs and attitudes that they have towards certain health issues. So could you tell us more about um, the culture of Appalachia? And this question will go to you, Dr. Arnold. 
and how does that impact or influence their health outcomes? And I know, Dr. Maroney, you've done some research also previously with um, with this community, so you can add on um, after Dr. Arnold. Yeah, um, culture in Appalachia is something that's something that's really interesting because it's not. Um, it's something that's developed over time. It's not like an indigenous culture like you would find with with native peoples. It's it's more of something that has um, evolved and been created out of struggles that the region has faced. And so at any given time, um, it's kind of looked a little bit different. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, like I said, it's come out of hardship um, because of generations of exploitation. And largely that's come from, you know, different levels of resource extraction, the media, and unfortunately, sometimes the government has, has, has led to this as well. And it's made people, um, you know, in a position where they've been struggling with institutional and systemic poverty for decades. And so when you're in a situation like that, it's led to a lot of interesting characteristics um, in terms of culture. And a lot of them are very positive, like resilience and innovation. Um, but it's also led to, you know, I would say a well-earned mistrust of outsiders and authority as a result of all of, you know, different, all these different groups taking advantage of, of the region and of people here. Um, and so people sometimes have developed a mistrust of outsiders and authority, and that's going to influence people's decision to seek health care, you know, um, there are a lot of reasons beyond financial and logistical reasons that that people have issues obtaining healthcare, and and you know of course access is one of them. But when you talk about cultural issues, um, you know people may not be relating to healthcare providers. They may have a mistrust of healthcare providers. Um, there is an issue with stereotype threat where um, it's been found that people that are part of a marginalized group, if they know that uh, there are stereotypes about their own culture, then that will create barriers in communication with other people because they're afraid of confirming stereotypes. So an Appalachian person may walk into, you know, a, a public service or a healthcare situation and they you know, if they're confronted with somebody that they don't trust or they don't know, they may think that that person is thinking negative things about them because of their dialect or the way they dress or, or any number of reasons. And that's going to prevent them from being, you know, really open and honest about what's going on. And that can lead to a lot of, um, a lot of breakdowns in, in providing services to people. Every time I hear Dr. Arnold talk about it, I, I learned something new. And I just feel that the way she explains it is just so important, especially for students to um, understand if they're if they're going to be working in the health healthcare field in any capacity, including public health. I agree. Um, again, we know culture is that collective uh, belief and attitudes about a community, and so it's really really important to have a good understanding of that before we engage with our communities, so that, like Dr. Arnold said, we don't go in and. Uh, people feel like we're there to use them and things of that nature. And then that becomes a barrier in access to healthcare services. So you have mentioned a little bit about involvement of the government and, you know, alluded to policies. So I wanted to know how does policy and decision making impact Appalachia Health and their ability to thrive? And, you know, how does that 
relate to public health implications? And we'll start with you, um, Dr. Murray. I will take a stab at this. This is a big question. Um, and I'm going to answer it maybe not satisfactorily, but the, the way I see policy and decision-making is really tied to money. And the most important piece of legislation, regardless of the level of government, local, state, federal government, in my view, is the budget bill or any legislation that says how much government can spend and on what. There can be all kinds of policies. You know, we can have policies to um, vaccinate people. We can have policies to um, have nutrition programs. We can have policies that require more restaurant inspections. But if there are no resources to implement the policies, it's going to be a struggle for those policies to make any difference, and especially when it comes to health. And when it comes to public health in Appalachia, some of the most important sources of services are in the local health departments. And in many cases, local health departments are funded by taxes. And that means that areas that have lower incomes and lower property values are not going to have the resources that areas that have higher incomes and higher property values. And you can, we see that in Ohio. And, you know, I, I feel pretty confident talking about Ohio. I don't feel as confident talking about other states in the region, but we see the relationship between wealth and health. And you can look at indicators, a, a range of indicators in our 32 Appalachian counties and compare them to the wealth, the wealthier counties not in the region, and you'll see differences. So, for in my opinion, the policy issue really, really comes down to money and whether that money is coming through the state, local, or federal budget, or if it's coming from local taxes. There is um, a finite amount of it, and if if there is a, a really good policy that could prevent a lot of health issues or promote public health, if the resources aren't there, those policies are not going to get implemented. And that is another, um, it's another concern that those of us who work in the region have, is that, that those decisions are really, a lot of them are out of the hands of the people who are affected by them. I hope that makes some sense. It makes a lot of sense. You've really broken it down very, very well um, in trying to really tie that down. Because when you think about it at the end of the day, policy decisions really determine um, the implementation or maybe even the sustainability of any kind of programs um, and interventions that we propose or if something is going to be shut down and things of that nature. So anything you would like to add to that, Dr. Arnold? And the only thing I would add is in, in thinking about when we're funding public services through taxes is that in these communities, we have had such a history of out-migration um, throughout the years that is occurring even now, whether that was, you know, when the coal mine industry pretty much busted and people lost their jobs and moved out of the region at, at really, you know, very great rates. And then, you know, 
till now where where we consistently are seeing below average, you know, less than national growth rates here in the region. And we have a big issue with brain drain and people that are leaving to get college educations and not returning because they don't feel like there's opportunity here. And so when that happens, it's leaving communities to really struggle because a lot of the people that remain in the communities um, are, you know, either very young or very old and in of retirement age, or they're people who are unemployed or under because of the education gap. And so, you know, they're not as able to contribute to the tax base as they would if we had a community where we didn't have people leaving all the time. And so when you're funding things through taxes, you know, you think about um, education and fire departments and police departments and health departments you know, it leaves these communities in a real continual struggle that never seems to get any better. Um, So I think that Dr. Maroney, you know, hits the nail on the head when when talking about the budget and how we have to figure out a way to help communities that are in this situation. So I'll ask a follow-up question with that. If I was a policymaker, right, now that we have a new government and, you know, we have this prevailing health issues that are tied to wealth, what would you say to me, Dr. Maroney, Dr. Arnold? I'm not an expert on the CARES Act. You know, I I follow it. This is the act that is, um, you know, was designed to help with uh, COVID, with the pandemic. But the the one the one piece of it that has concerned me is the lack of money, at least in the first major uh, legislation, the lack of money that was earmarked for state and local governments. And the local health departments, as you know, are really involved in vaccination and education when it comes, and enforcement, mask enforcement, when it comes to um, trying to, the public health uh, approaches to coronavirus. And you can't just ship a bunch of vaccines to a local health department and expect that the vaccines are going to be, you know, distributed efficiently and and they're going to be ready to go. The the local health departments are already resource strapped. And now the past year has added even more strain. Um, And there was, as I understand it, like I said, I'm not an expert on the CARES Act. There was very little, if any money from the federal government to these local health departments. And, it's just an example of a decision that is being made without resources, enough resources tied to help um, those that have to implement them. So you brought up the CARES Act and, you know, what the health departments are doing. Um, do you know much about the impact of COVID-19 um, on Appalachia overall or just in other rural areas and on rural health? Yeah, so I'll start. And, and uh, Dr. Arnold and I actually had a conversation about this um, because there are there are impacts um, in Appalachia, specifically, um, and in rural health in general. But we're not going to see you know the data on those impacts for a little while yet. So right now, I think you're you know bits and pieces of, of information is is coming out, and and I think that you know health. Health disparities already existed in Appalachia. They were already here. And many of those disparities were based on inequitable decisions and inequitable policies. Um, They're still here. 
and they're getting worse in some instances. You know, the some of the preliminary um, data that's emerging is that uh, has to do with substance use disorder and how, you know, maybe there was some progress being made in Appalachia before the pandemic, and now some indicators are looking like it's getting worse. Um, and lot, some of that has to do with, you know, lack of access to treatment or, or other kinds of services. Um, and local rural health departments have been overwhelmed. So that's one impact. But I, like I said, I think it's, it's going to be a while before we actually see the documentation. And then shifting to telehealth. And then I think that Dr. Arnold has a few, um, you know, thoughts on using telehealth and telemental health in the region as well. Yeah, um, to me, that has been the the first, well, there are two really glaring issues that have come up with um, with this pandemic. And the first one is that, you know, we have a severe broadband issue in this part of the country that doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, it's been a problem for a while, but we've kind of been limping along and getting through it. But this shift to everything being virtual has really um, kind of thrown a spotlight on that. And so, you know, when when you think about the services that now we are receiving virtually that we were receiving in person, there's a problem when we don't have access to internet. And so people aren't able to, you know, get online to get those telehealth appointments and to, you know, to talk to a doctor or a mental health care provider when they need it. And, you know, a lot, sometimes people lack the computer literacy skills to access that type of care. You know, there are people's, you know, who are of a certain generation that maybe don't, you know, have not had to have that, you know, education before where they are using a computer to talk to people. And so that's kind of widened a gap that was already there. Um, the other thing that has been, you know, because I have school-aged children, the other thing that stood out to me when this happened is that there are a lot of, of free and reduced lunch recipients from the USDA program in, in this area. And specifically, I'm thinking about Athens County in Southeast Ohio. And when, you know, when school shut down and students were left at home, um, they lost access to healthy meals. You know, they were receiving possibly breakfast and lunch through school. And so schools have now had to really think on their feet and, and become a food delivery service. I know that the Athens City Schools in particular have done a fantastic job in making sure that every student who, who wants food delivered to their home is having it delivered to home so that they have that there during this time where they're learning remotely. So I think that um, it's kind of made the food insecurity issue even more glaring. Um, Lately in Athens, there have been some food giveaways, and uh, the one that I'm thinking of particularly is when they give the food boxes out at the fairgrounds on Saturdays. They've been doing this for the last few Saturdays, and if you go down Union Street, there's a line of traffic. I mean, probably a half a mile to a mile long of cars waiting for these food boxes. So I think that, you know, in a place that we were already struggling with these issues, that this situation has really um, exacerbated that and, and put people in a situation that, that they, you know, have not found themselves in before, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, and, and maybe for this period of time, we've taken a step back from thriving to just surviving, right? But we'll, we'll look for good stories. I mean, the, the food uh, security, might there might be a good story, you know, a pause. I don't mean like good story. I mean, there might be a positive story there in that local organizations are getting together to, to help the community, you know, to solve the problem. The need is greater. Um, 
but they're able to I, I don't know maybe this maybe the story maybe there's a, a positive story there about the local organizations and, and addressing food insecurity during the pandemic and we all have a lot to a lot of lessons to learn from this and um, I think you know the data and, and studies will be ongoing for years there's lots of lots of questions that I think many of us are going to be seeking answers to Right. So, you know, COVID-19 definitely has exacerbated the gaps um, in Appalachia and overall um, rural regions. And as Dr. Roney has said, you know, we can, we'll find some positive notes um, or opportunities out of this mishappenings. And I wanted to sort of wind up the conversation with what kinds of opportunities do you see? Um, that or are existing or maybe you project will come out of this um, and that we need to know about um, Appalachia Health? Well, this, this might sound overly optimistic, which I am not an optimist. So let me just preface this with, with that statement. But I think those of us in public health are, should be at least a little excited that Everybody knows how to say epidemiology now and has a pretty good understanding of what an epidemiologist does, like might be able to explain to you what an epidemiologist does. I actually think the pandemic could lead to more young people considering public health as a career. And those of us, especially in environmental health, we know that we need um, new blood in the, in the field. We have an aging workforce and you know, maybe a positive aspect of this could be that we will have um, the the workforce will expand because more people are interested in public health. Um, I would just say I'm hoping I'm also not you know a natural optimist, but my my hope is that you know people through this will now kind of see what health departments do and understand you know they, how essential they are to you know public health and to people you know, getting what they need on that level. And I'm hoping that this will encourage people after this is all over to, to seek out those resources more readily and to understand um, how, how beneficial it can be to, to, to understand what a health department does. And maybe as we, we look back and, and do a retrospective of the pandemic, maybe we'll find some communities in Appalachia that have, you know, really excelled. And, and one community, and I'm using air quotes, that, you know, the whole state of West Virginia, which is the only state um, that's completely in the geographic region of Appalachia, the reports out of West Virginia is that they are doing an amazing job when it comes to vaccination. And that might be one of the those compelling bright spots um, in the region. I, you know, I don't, I haven't seen data or anything, but I have seen news reports that really tout the work that West Virginia is doing, getting their, their people vaccinated. And I agree with you on that. Um, from what we know about disparities, uh, you know, West Virginia was right there um, in terms of experiencing major health disparities, but now they are leaders um, in how to get people vaccinated. Um, and so that's something to learn. And some of those stereotypes that Dr. Arnold was talking about, um, you know, again, they've come crashing down. 
um, because of this kind of leadership that um, West Virginia is showing us. So as we wind down, are there any last comments you want to tell us or you want to discuss or highlight with regard to your book and anything else that has to do with Appalachian rural health? The book is available in electronic form. Um, format and the it's not we're not charging anything for it at this point because it, it really is a collection of of stories and essays and um, we also have a limited number of hard copies available as well and they can contact me at Ohio University um, to get information about how to access the book and, and read the stories. Um, so, you know, hopefully some people will pick it up and and hopefully many people will pick it up and, and take a look at it and have their maybe a little different perspective on, the, on this place. I would just like to take this opportunity to uh, encourage people to, you know, join in on the Appalachian Studies Association conference that's coming up in March. Uh, it is virtual this year. So, you know, while it's not the same spirit that we have normally, it's a great opportunity for people who don't normally go to this conference to to check in on it and, and take a, you know, a look at what we have to offer. And I, and I hope that people remember that in 2023 that, that we'll be hosting that conference here at Ohio University and um, that, that, you know, people can come and, and maybe get a different perspective on a region that, that a lot of people don't know a lot about or maybe have some pre preconceived notions about. So I hope people remember that and, and you know, look towards us, you know, highlighting those assets in the future. Awesome. And for the conference, Dr. Arnold, would you like to provide your contact information? Sure. Um, my email address is Arnold t2 at ohio.edu um, and feel free to email me with any questions about about the conference and dr maroney any questions about the book uh, how can they contact you yeah i can be um reached by email too i think that's probably the way that everybody is communicating these days and it's just my last name m-o-r-r-o-n-e at ohio.edu Wonderful. This has been exciting. I'm so happy to have had you on the show to talk about this book. Again, I'm pretty stoked about this title, um, you know, from surviving to thriving. I think that is, is a true testament of, you know, what Appalachia right now is becoming. And I'm looking forward to have you back on the show again. Dr. Maroney, I've interviewed you before. So it's exciting to have you on the show a second time. And Dr. Arnold, always great um, to talk with you. So thanks to the listeners for uh, taking the time to listen um, and to just learn more about Appalachia. And we hope that you will check out that information about the conference as well as the books. Get some for yourself, get some for your friends and your families and get to know more about the Appalachia region. So thank you so much, ladies. And I do wish you a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you.